Hello Roadman, welcome back. I hope everybody is enjoying their Easter weekend. Have I got a serious treat in store for you today. Today's guest is Ian Boswell. If you don't know the name Ian Boswell, you're not a massive cycling anorak like me. Ian Boswell was one of the most talented up-and-coming under-23 riders in the world. Blitz the U23 ranks before making the World Tour move over to Team Sky. Really one of the first U23 non-British riders to sign for Team Sky. He's ridden all three Grand Tours. He moved from Sky over to Katusha before he had a life-changing crash. And it was his sixth concussion. Hit the head and he had a question. Do I take a World Tour contract again next year? Or do I decouple my identity from cycling and try and find my own path in life? I'm not going to spoil it for you. Uh, I'm going to jump right into it, but before I do, a couple of messages from our beautiful sponsor, Juve. If you jump on over to Juve, J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash A1 coaching, they're going to hook you up with a free gift when you get your unit. If you don't know what Juve is at this stage, you must have had your head under a rock. Every single Premiership player is using Juve. Every single NFL player, NHL player, all the pro golfers, everyone is using Juve already. It's going to take cycling by storm. The benefits are increased testosterone production, better skin health through collagen, better sleep, mood regulation. It's an absolute game changer. I've been using it for a few months now and anyone who follows me on Instagram knows how much I love the thing. So jump on over to juve.com forward slash A1 coaching and I'm going to hook you up with that gift. And the second show sponsor who I want to plug today, it's actually just ourselves. Uh, At a time when a lot of companies around the world are struggling, a lot of people are going back to the wall and they're laying employees off. We've really tried to double down, especially on this podcast, double down and bring you guys better guests, better show quality. Obviously, all this comes at a cost and... We do have a new Patreon, which I would love if you guys went over and checked out. The Patreon's over at patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. So I know we're in lockdown at the moment, but if you'd be willing to buy me a pint, if you'd be willing to buy me a coffee to just say, you know what, thanks for the work you're putting in on the podcast. I would really appreciate it if you jumped on over to Patreon and extended that same courtesy. It keeps this channel floating and it keeps me up in that production quality and able to bring you top quality guests week after week. Big question is this, how do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness and our longevity? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Ian Boswell, welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty cool chat. I'm excited about it. Ian, I'm going to jump around all over the place in this uh, chat because I always hated when I was reading an autobiography and page one started with, so I grew up in Bend, Oregon, my mama was. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to start and I'm going to start with your crash. Uh, I suppose when I look at your career, it's punctuated by that crash. Uh, Trino Adriatico and it changed the course of your life. Do you want to talk to me about that? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, we're, you know, 12 months past the the incident um but yeah it was you know a relatively normal normal stage you know nothing about the crash was really of any you know 
extreme danger on the course or anything. Um, but yeah, I, I crashed and suffered a pretty severe concussion. Um, you know, and it was kind of one of a string of concussions that I've had over my career and just due to the kind of the lingering symptoms and actually, you know, being properly, you know, checked out by doctors and then eventually coming back to the U S and kind of being rung around the, the medical system. Um, you know, there was some, yeah, some things found that were just like, Hey, this is, you know, a lot more serious than, than I had thought it was at the beginning, you know, in the first, you know, kind of days following the crash, you know, I think I was actually just on a call before speaking to you with, uh, the North American riders union trying to implement a more, I don't know, a more kind of up-to-date protocol and one a more, you know, comprehensive protocol for, for concussion and cycling, just because a lot of information is lacking. And personally, you know, I could have benefited, um, had I had I had more information on hand, you know, in those first you know days and weeks following my crash, did but I obviously, right yeah. That, uh, did I read it right that you that was just your sixth concussion? Yeah, I mean, six that I you know really know about, um, and all all cycling related. Um, just various crashes over the course of my career, you know, racing, training, you know, playing around on a bike. Um, but yeah, it's obviously you know concussion in, in all sport is is a hot topic right now, and you've seen you know major American sports address it you know more seriously, and even you know rugby. Um, I was on a call with a with a doctor in, in Ireland actually a couple weeks back, um, just about how the culture of you know concussion in in rugby has changed, and you know not that I'm a big advocate of uh trying to bring something to cycling it's definitely become a little bit of a, a passion project for me just to just to bring more awareness to it but yeah regarding my crash you know it was you know an, an unforeseen end to my professional road career and it was something that you know i had no intentions of you know stopping stopping my career at the age of 28 um but just given the circumstances did yeah. you know how dangerous concussions were at the time like when you're five concussions deep do you have an understanding of the effect of cumulative concussions? No, not at all. I mean, I, you know, and I follow sports relatively regularly. So I, you know, I'd seen, you know, different articles about, you know, CTE and stuff in the NFL and, you know, boxing. But as an athlete, you're oftentimes ignorant to kind of your personal, you know, well-being. You know, you're so focused on one thing that, you know, you kind of ignore that, like, oh, it's not going to be me. And, you know, you read all the time about, you know, a rider crashes, you know, there's the, the death of um, a rider last year in Tour Poland. And, you know, there's crashes happen all the time, but it's something that you never really think about until it actually affects you. And, you know, we as athletes just, yeah, ignore it because, you know, you can't have those thoughts in your mind when you're racing. I texted a buddy of mine, to a training partner, to let him know that you were coming on the podcast. And he just texted me back, oh, head injury friend. Uh, <laughs> I was racing. I'd never got to a near standard you are, but I was racing Continental in the US with a team of Stellis Oncology. And oh, yeah. I wiped out in a bunch sprint, like towards the end of the season, uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, I thought it was so cool because it was like a weekend where I didn't have the whole team with me and I was just getting to do my own thing, sitting on the back of the healthcare train, getting to mix it up in the sprints and uh, pocketing the prize money. I was having great fun on the Saturday, got up, pocketed a few quid, same on the Sunday, and I raced in Detroit on the Monday. Huge crash in the bunch sprints, and I went down, bust myself up pretty good, broken shoulder, broken ribs, broken nose, concussion. But I, Mike Barry, a Canadian guy, did you ride with first guy 
with Mike? I was never on the team at the same time as him. No, I think he left the year before or two years before I joined the team. Yeah, but Mike Mike was coaching me at the time and I remember just talking to him and just saying, you know what, look, I'm done with this. It's just the risk to reward, especially at continental level for me was just didn't make sense. But talk me through that risk to reward decision you had to make because you had to draw a pretty firm line under it because you had a contract offer and you decided to say no to it. Yeah, you know, I sat on the fence for a long time. You know, my crash was in March and, you know, I was at Katusha last year. Um, you know, the team was very supportive of the process. You know, I think medically they were a bit, um, I don't want to say absent, but they, you know, I decided with the team to come back to the U.S. just because I felt like, you know, I could have better medical care, just, you know, having someone drive me to doctor's appointments and, um, you know, oftentimes team or cycling doctors, you know, they don't they're not, they don't specify in, in head trauma. Um, so the team was supportive for me coming back and, you know, taking the time that I needed. So all the while, you know, in my head, I was really questioning, you know, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to racing? And, you know, obviously in the first couple months, you know, there was no question that I was going to get better and go back to racing, but kind of as time drew on and I you know, started to speak to more doctors and seek out more specialists and kind of evaluate, you know, where I was in my career and, you know, knowing the process by which it takes to, you know, be a professional athlete and the, the sacrifices you make, you know, I think having that almost, you know, sabbatical away from racing kind of allowed me to realize that, you know, just through that process, something in me had changed. And, you know, I didn't need that. Um, I guess I just wasn't willing or wanting to go back to that world that, that I knew. And, you know, I didn't, you know, have a career where, you know, didn't win the Tour de France or, you know, Liege best on Liege, but I feel like I had accomplished enough to realize that, you know what, I, at some point I'm going to come to the end of my career and I've already kind of been through a lot of the, the mental difficulties of, you know, being out of the sport that, you know, to go back in and realize in three years time that, or, you know, five years time, whatever it was that I was going to have to go through that whole process again. Um, it was actually pretty frightening. But what's that do to your sense of identity? Like, you must have seen yourself as, look, I mean, Boswell, cyclist. And now when you can't do this anymore, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, you know, and there's really like a lot of kind of things that happened subsequently um, around the crash. You know, my, my wife and I got married last year, so that changed my perspective. Yeah, thank you. Um, but, you know, we also had moved to, to rural Vermont and we're in a relatively small, actually a very small community, more like a, you know, a village setting. Um, and we actually live outside the village center. Cool. And just the kind of the change internally that happened moving here and, you know, the, the sense that people here are not, you know, they're not cycling fans. They don't know much about the sport and that kind of my identity had already begun to change, you know, away from being this, you know, professional athlete and, in Europe where, you know, there's a lot of attention drawn to you because of your achievements or your status. Um, so kind of internally, you know, that process to realize that, you know, my, my actions as a human and part of my community are going to outweigh my, you know, kind of ability on a bike. Um, so, I mean, like I said, multiple things kind of went hand in hand to make me realize that there's a lot more to life than, you know, being a professional road cyclist and, you know, spending, you know, most of my day focusing on, on myself and what I'm doing. You summed that up like pretty nicely, but I'm guessing that's, uh, it's a pretty hard journey. I remember post-concussion for me, I played soccer before I was a cyclist and 
I probably had two or three documented concussions as a cyclist, but fuck knows how many more as a soccer player before that. But I know I went through some pretty low points with the concussion, like being at a buddy's wedding and just like just social anxiety, the noise, the mood swings, all that goes with it. Yeah, you know, and I've spoken a little bit about it before to different, you know, publications or, you know, articles, podcasts. But yeah, it was, you know, there were definitely a lot of hard times. You know, there was times when I would just find myself in like, you know, a puddle of tears crying for no specific reason or, you know, my wife would say something and they would just set me off. And, um, and, you know, part of that was from, from the crash and just the, you know, the brain chemistry of, you know, of hitting your head at high force. But a lot of it was also just the fact that, you know, I was very much lost as a person and realizing that, you know, if I'm not a professional athlete, who am I, what am I, you know, what am I doing? What am I going to do next? I'm 28 years old, you know, I've, you know, almost, you know, completely immersed myself in, in this world that, you know, is really hard to get out of. And, you know, a lot of my friends were in that world and yeah, it's a, um, it's a challenging time for anyone to stop, you know, high level sport. And I'd actually, um, Philip Dignan was actually the one who came to pick me up from the hospital. I read in Italy that actually. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, and Phil's, uh, he's been a good friend of mine for a long time. We raced at, at Sky together and yeah, he drove 14 hours to come pick me up, which I was, you know, blown away because he, you know, as a rider, he wasn't, you know, we're all selfish to a degree and for him to drive, you know, spend an entire day coming to pick me up. I was like, wow, that's, yeah, Philip's a dude. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, well, it's beyond impressive. It's extremely kind, but you know, to realize that a lot of these friends and, you know, acquaintances you make, you know, they do extend beyond cycling and kind of speaking with him a little bit and just the process of, of retiring. It's, it's not easy because you do, like I said, lose some, some of your identity and who you are and, um, yeah, it's not a not an easy process for anyone. And rebuilding that identity as something new now, uh, how are you finding that? Are, like I noticed there, you kind of you said you'd stepped away from being a top. I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but you stepped away from top performance sport. Do you see gravel as a little bit of a side step for you? Or are you taking the kind of Peter Stetton like that dude looks pumped for it? Yeah, he's uh, he's full on into it. You know, I. You know, I spoke to Ted King about this. You know, I I very much see myself as like a retired athlete or a retired professional. Um, you know, so I I still love riding my bike, and that was another thing I realized in that time away was that you know cycling for me is a lifelong sport and something that I always want to do. And you know, I didn't want to end a career with you know any sort of animosity towards cycling or my bike. And you see a lot of athletes, you know, in the sport of cycling retire and don't touch their bike for five years. And it's like, I did not want to do that. I yeah, still love riding my bike. It's tragic to see, isn't it? You see some just like amazing athletes. I remember back to that story of Mike Barry, because he was coaching me at the time. And I remember I was all recovered from that crash. And I talked to Mike and he said, look, don't make a decision when you're injured, get back fit and then make a decision. So I got back fit and I said like, you know, Mike, I'm done with, this full-time cycling business like it's just too dangerous and he said cool then he texted me like two days later he's like you're going for a ride and i was like what are you on about dude i just told you like i'm done <laughs> and then he's yeah. like yeah you're done racing you didn't like you're not done cycling we all started cycling because it's fun no one started to make a paycheck yeah when i think kind of that's where that's where i'm at now you know and i you know still love riding my bike and gravel racing riding um is a nice balance of, you know, you can take it as serious as you want. And obviously there are a lot of athletes now, you know, treating it as a profession. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have some good partners that, you know, provide me the equipment I need, um, to continue to, 
you know, do that. But I, at the same time, you know, I have a, I have a full-time job at, at Wahoo. Um, so I'm entering, entering the workforce for the first time in my life. I've <laughs> What's that been, like? It's awesome. You know, they're, they're a brand that I've been close with for a long time. You know, they came to sky when I went to sky in 2013. Um, you know, it's an American brand at the time. I was one of three Americans there with Dombrowski and Danny Pate. Um, so I've always stayed in close contact. They were at Katusha as well when I was there. And, um, they're very, you know, being a, a brand in the endurance sports space, you know, they're very understanding that, you know, it's, it is, it is a, like I said, challenging transition. It's not just something that, you know, you go from, you know, riding your bike 30 hours a week to sitting at a desk 40 hours a week. So, you know, I'm working remotely for them. They're based down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm up here in Vermont. So it's, you know, I'm extremely fortunate to have a role where I'm able to still, you know, live where I want to live, ride my bike, but also, you know, have a nice transition into, into the workforce because it's, it's completely different than, you know, being a cyclist when you kind of operate on your own time schedule. But like, I would arguably say, like, as a cycling fan, like, it's, it's cool even talking to you. I heard you in one of your interviews talking about how you still look back at US postal documentaries and stuff. I feel this on the podcast all the time. Like, I chatted to Stephen Roach one day. I was like, oh, I'm standing to Stephen Roach. How is this even real? This is insane. But do you have an awareness at the moment of just how big that gravel movement could be? Because I see you... Lachlan Morton, Alex Howes, Peter Stettner, probably missing someone, but there's not many of you guys. You know, if you go World Tour, there's a hundred of you guys, and you're all beasts on the bike, but it feels different. It feels detached. It feels like you're someone on the TV. Somehow gravel feels more accessible. I feel like all I need is a gravel bike, and I can go and ride with you guys when it's like it's like going playing the Premiership or playing with Cristiano Ronaldo, the Tour de France guys. Yeah, well, and that's something that I've always, you know, it didn't challenge me as a pro rider, but there's, there's a, a distance between, you know, the athletes and the fans. Um, and, you know, some teams keep a, that barrier higher than others. And that's one thing, you know, for example, you know, you wrote me on, on Instagram and I responded, um, you know, I've always kept that just thought that like, you know, we, you know, as our, myself as athletes and other athletes, you know, we, we are here because we have fans. And so like making sure to allow time to, you know, to speak to those people and engage with people is something that I really enjoy. You know, I, you know, have met a lot of good friends, you know, who people just reached out to me, you know, somewhat, you know, on a whim and, you know, you build connections with people. And I think gravel more so than road is a larger community of people who are all in it together and doing the same thing. And, you know, you line up at these races and to be honest, I haven't done many of them yet. Um, But, you know, you're on the start line with, you know, 3000 people and some of them might be, you know, training as a pro athlete and others might be, you know, this is their first ever bike event that they, you know, signed up for and it's in their hometown and, you know, that got them out riding and they might not even know who the big athletes are. And that's awesome. I heard, I'm not sure who it was, one of the gravel guys, I heard them describe it as, you know, if you're trying to describe to a friend who's not into cycling, like what the Tour de France is, and you're like, yeah, we race for three weeks, there's this one race, it's the classification, but then there's a race every day, and then we have these mountains classifications, we sprint classifications, and you can just see their eyes glazing over. Whereas you talk about gravel, and it's like, yeah, it's kind of, it's six hours, and you got to bring your own snacks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of back to the, back to the basics, and you know, like you said, we all got into biking because we loved it. And I've always had a competitive side, you know, even when I was young, you know, racing neighborhood kids around the block. So it's it's nice to ride fast. And I think, you know, something within me wants to always ride faster. Um, but there's just less, there's a lot less pressure in gravel. You know, if you're out there and you have a, 
poor day and you said, you know what, I'm just going to cruise with, you know, a group that's 30 minutes behind, that's fine. And, you know, you're still out there riding the bike and the experience is so much different than that of road racing where, you know, it's a high performance sport and, you know, the performance kind of dictates your, your mood and your mentality. And even, you know, kind of going back to reasons of, of walking away, you know, a lot of your daily happiness and you probably can attest to this is based off of you know how your training ride went you know you get back and you didn't hit you know your training numbers and you're you know upset yeah. for the rest of the day and you're questioning all like oh what's what's wrong am i sick did i eat you know not enough did i you know not get enough sleep am i dehydrated and it's like maybe you just felt bad and <laughs> you know so like now so are you, you know, still training with a parameter on your gravel bike um, I actually did just get a, a power meter for my gravel bike. I, you know, I don't have a coach or anything, you know, more just out of like interest. You know, I don't, I don't have a training plan or anything. Um, I have one cause it's something that, you know, it's a tool and it's something I can look at, but it's not something that I'm, you know, kind of living or dying by. And, you know, there's oftentimes rides when, you know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, more or less just riding my bike, which is awesome. You know, I have it and it records what I've done, but, you know, having not, having the race season kind of postponed this year um you know i haven't been training specifically for anything because what's a I'm training enjoying week? riding my bike what's a training week looking like for you at the moment uh, it's uh it's a bit all over the map to be honest you know like i said i i am in a i am in the workforce now so i was actually over in nice at the end of february um for work but just with the time difference i had a lot of free time during the day and yeah i felt like a felt like a world tour rider again for a couple <laughs> weeks i did a couple like I think two, almost 30 hour weeks. Um, Big boy it was awesome because I was, yeah, well, I was just there by, you know, I was there and all these riders, I'd kind of just do everyone's long endurance day because I don't have a training plan. It's like, cool, I can do everyone's, you know, five, six hour ride, um, catch up with old friends. But back home, um, it kind of just depends on the week and the weather and, you know, what's happening. But I try to try to ride most, most days, probably, you know, five or six days a week. Um, even if that just means, you know, jumping, jumping on my Wahoo kicker for, you know, an hour or something with my wife, um, before dinner time or something, just cause I, I enjoy sweating and, you know, staying active. So when those big rides do pop up that I, you know, know I have a level of fitness to, to be able to handle them. Have you dived into the Zwift? I've done a little bit of Zwift. Yeah. It's, uh, something I actually, you know, indoor training for me was never something I really enjoyed. And then my wife and I moved to Vermont in 2017 and we have pretty severe winters here. So indoor riding is something that, that I've become more accustomed to. So, you know, Zwift and also there's a platform called the sufferer fest, which is more specific. It's pretty good. Cool well, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've done quite a bit of that. Cause I know, you know, cool. I can jump on. This is a workout I like it's, you know, 45 minutes and you know, you can get a lot of work done in 45 minutes and you know, I can be at work by, by nine o'clock and you know, still have gotten a workout in the morning so what have you loosened back i know world tour you're obviously obsessed with food especially coming through the sky machine uh have you dialed back that strictness on diet or have you removed that guilt around food um yeah you know it's something that i'm you know i still i just enjoy being healthy you know i i obviously don't need to be you know 70 kilos anymore um i don't weigh myself anymore either so it's nice. it's something you know, the last three weeks, my brother's been here. Um, and yeah, we've just been, you know, I've been riding less cause he's been out and we've been doing other projects and, you know, drinking a bit more beer than normal. And I started to, the other day I was sitting down and saw like a little, 
a little fat roll. I mean, my wife's like, Ian, you're still really skinny, but I'm like, oh man, like, you know, I gotta, I gotta watch what I, you know, not watch what I eat, but just be, be cognizant also because I'm not, not burning calories like I was. And, you know, I just hope to always maintain, you know, a decent level of body composition, but no, I'm not, uh, not crazy about it. You know, I definitely enjoy my Ben and Jerry's ice cream every night. You're in the home of Ben and Jerry's as well, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we can get it for like three dollars a pint, so it's uh, oh, it's cheap. <laughs> it's not a good mix, though. Like just because we're in full lockdown here at the moment for the COVID, so we're only allowed two k from the house. Um, yeah. So yeah, people are getting pretty creative and riding like twenty eight k loops, two k from the house. But restricted movement on Ben and Jerry's is not a mix you want to take lightly. No, it's not, and it's you know it's something that you know throughout my career I never really had. I mean, I never had a struggle losing weight. You know, I put on weight just fine in the off season. Um, you know, m- both my wife and I, we have a pretty healthy diet and, you know, we're, you know, but we don't, you know, we eat relatively normal and we always have, you know, we don't skimp on things and we eat, you know, bacon and ice cream and cheese. And, you know, we're, um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of, you know, being aware of what you're eating. And so, like I said, I just enjoy, I enjoy feeling healthy. It's got so kind of one of the whole goals of the podcast is we try to figure out when I had my I had a bit of a reset there I quit cycling two years ago and then I came back last season and I said the reason I'm coming back is I want to figure out how to have a more sustainable relationship with cycling how to use cycling as kind of like a tool to achieve like health happiness and longevity and what I can see is a lot of amateur athletes you know cat two guys cat one guys like you know they can ride their bike but they're not proud or not earning their living from it. But they take it just so serious because they're just obsessed with cycling news, you know, old doctrines like Sean Kelly, never stand if you can sit, never sit, if you can lie down, if you can lie down, go asleep. But what that does is it just erodes the quality of life they have in every other aspect of their life. It seems like you've got a real balance off the bike now. I've seen you're taking up like woodwork and plumbing and electrics and you're quite the handyman. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that I've always kind of kept throughout my career. You know, I was never one, you know, you definitely take rest periods. You know, I, over the course of my career, I definitely developed a habit of napping, which, um, you know, I don't have as much time for anymore. But, you know, I I think being active is, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean exercising, but just being, you know, active in your life and doing things and, you know, being a relatively social individual, you know, always, you know, whether it's going out to dinner or when I was in Nice, you know, going to the beach with someone, um, you know people oftentimes use the analogy like your car is like or your body is like a car and a gas tank and you know you got to save your fuel and energy and um it's an analogy that you know works but i was never one to like fully buy in and think that you know everything you do has to be centered around you know your racing and your fitness and there are definitely times you know throughout my career when you know leading up to a grand tour when the two three weeks before you're extremely focused um but you know the balance for me in life was always part of, you know, was always of importance to keep, you know, keep a life outside of just thinking, you know, all day of, you know, riding your bike and stretching and napping and what you're going to eat. Well, that's got to ease the transition as well for you. Yeah, it definitely has. Well, I mean, if anything, um, you know, there's all these things that I always wanted to do that I, you know, just didn't have time for. And now I have more time to do that, which is, you know, part of the reason why I'm not always riding as much as I would like. Um, you know it's you know been riding with quite a few you know masters riders who you know have families and a full-time job and still you know can ride a bike extremely well and fast 
and it, you know those people are almost like more of an inspiration to me than some of the world tour riders because like these people are balancing a lot and they're still you know they're you know whether it's you know one or two hours a day or a longer ride on the weekend that's their you know that's the time when they get to just go out and suffer and they love it and it's it's cool to see people with that desire to just go out and, and push themselves well i had my last podcast guest i had a, a dude called ed veal i'm not sure if you heard of him he's rides uh, uh he was on the canadian pursuit team but he's just moved across to piloting their tandem for para but he's 43 years old he didn't break into the canadian national team till he was 37 but wow. it, the, the dude just has crazy balance in life and because i have a coaching company and i talk a lot of the time with uh dudes from are assessing their goals and they always put a limit on what they achieve because they think, oh, I can't go all in on this. And it's like, you don't need to go all in. You can you can get pretty fit and still have a very balanced life. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of, you know, pro or con that there's so much media now and, you know, you can follow riders on, on Strava and see power files. So a lot of, you know, amateurs, masters, juniors, you know, see what pros are doing and they get worked up to thinking that's what they need to do. Um but the reality is that a lot of pro riders probably train more than they actually need to. It's oftentimes a circumstance of having the time to, you know, do 30 plus hour weeks. Is that really necessary? In most cases, it's not. But, you know, they have the time for that. But you can, you know, you can, as a coach, you know, you can reach a really high level of fitness doing, you know, 15 hours a week. If you're in structured work, then you can get pretty darn fit. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I'm as I said to you, we're in lockdown over here at the moment, and uh, I've chatting to buddies and just reflect on it myself and diary and, and and meditating and stuff like that. What it seems like the world is going through at the moment, it's just nearly everyone pressing pause and everyone's getting a chance to reevaluate what's important to them. It's f- and it's not things like cars because we can't drive them here at the moment it's not things like material goods because we mainly can't use them it's mainly health it's family it's just the ability to sit sit still and be quiet in yourself and these things are super important you got to press pause big time with the concussion in that period between the concussion and when you said no to the contract was a big press and pause looking back at your career from then were you happy with how it was panning out up to that point yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, having that moment to actually press pause and, you know, like you said, to be able to make that choice that I wanted to stop racing myself, um, you know, that was a big decision that I made. But having the ability to decide that it was kind of under my, you know, it was very much my choice and I had the opportunity to keep racing and I chose not to, you know, that that's something that I'm really happy with that, you know, I a lot of athletes don't have the opportunity to choose when their career ends and you know, I was able to, to make that choice. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of athletes, taking a pause is something incredibly important. And, you know, this current, you know, circumstance when athletes, it's not something that they're necessarily going to be as stressed about as an injury or something. Um, you know, it really is an important time to reflect. And, you know, I, I hadn't, you know, looking back on my career, I raced in the world tour for, for seven years. I raced with some of the best athletes and it wasn't really until I decided to stop that I kind of reflected on what I did and what I achieved. And, you know, I was a kid who grew up in, in Oregon, you know, riding bikes around my neighborhood and I got a race at team sky and racing the tour de France and race with guys like, you know, Wiggins and Froome and Garrett Thomas. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy how, like you said, you know, you got to speak with 
you know, Stephen Roach. And, you know, the other day I was on the phone with Conchalara for a podcast. And said, wow, like, <laughs> you know, you're, you sometimes take it for granted that you're, you know, in this world and, you know, that you're speaking to these people that are, you know, legends of the sport. Your dad was a professional triathlete, am I right? He was, yeah, back in the, uh, back in the mid 80s. So I guess coming up and then you were just, it was you and Joe Dombrowski were just insanely good U23 riders. I guess you probably had that expectation that oh, this is pretty easy. <laughs> I'm going to go into World Tour and carve this up in a couple of years. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this actually the other day. I was, I was on a ride and just thinking about like I would go to, you know, the state championships, the national championships and, you know, for whatever reason, had a lot of confidence when I was younger. It's something I definitely lost as I got older in my career and was racing against, you know, a wider pool of riders. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, there's a lot of good memories from, from racing and something that, you know, those are, those are still with me and, you know, I've met a lot of great people doing it. Was the transition, it's, it's such a transition from U23 where I suppose you're, you're team leader, you're your own man, but also age group, it's just going to limit the amount of quality there. So it's you and Joe Dombrowski are obviously head and shoulders from what I can remember above the rest of the U23 guys. But then you're stepping up to world tour level where all of a sudden that restriction is off. And so you've the best U23 riders from the last, what, like 10, 15 years all still currently yeah. racing. That's got to be pretty intimidating when you get into that setting and you have a Team Sky jersey on your back because there's the extra expectation there. Yeah, definitely. You know, in my first two two years at Sky, I really struggled. You know, the first couple months I went into the team and I was fairly confident. I just moved over to Europe and, you know, had good results my previous year as under-23 rider. So I was, you know, obviously Sky saw saw something that I, you know, my, I guess, talent. Um but I definitely lost that, especially in my first year. You know, I kind of felt like, oh, cool, I can just kind of skate by and the world tour can't be that much different than under 23 racing. And I couldn't have been more wrong. What was you the know, difference? It was just everything. I mean, the speed and, um, you know, just the, the danger in the bunch and the ability to move around the bunch and just the, you know, the endurance required for, for longer races. And a big part of it as well was, you know, I'd moved over to Europe and was living in a foreign country, you know, on my own. Um, and just, you know, trying to set up a life there and still train and didn't really, you know, not really fully realizing in those first couple of years, how much of, you know, exterior stress kind of can translate to, you know, stress on the bike, you know, just like cutting rides short. I wasn't really, I was almost more focused on trying to get my life set up than I was, you know, my training and some athletes are the complete opposite. They're able to, you know, kind of put everything in life on hold and just focus on the training and I'm the opposite. Like I, if I have a bunch of emails to get back to or text messages or something, you know, I'm going to wait till I get all that taken care of before I go ride. And does Sky um, give you an infrastructure to kind of facilitate that move across? Or are you very much they, on your own? They will. So Dombrowski and I were kind of um, the first people to be a part of that project. So we had moved to Nice and I moved actually out in December of 2012. And Sky was just kind of starting to set up their base and kind of service course or, you know, kind of athlete service course outside of Nice, Monaco. Um, so by the time we had gone there, there wasn't much in place as far as support, you know, it was, it was happening, it was being developed. Um, but at the time, you know, Joe and I were the first foreign riders, um, I guess Puccio had gone there, but we were some of the first, you know, riders to come to the team as Neo pros from, you know, non-European backgrounds. Um, so not to say we we're at all an experiment, but, you know, the team 
learned a lot from us just as far as like how they could best support athletes coming to the world tour from the under 23 ranks do you think it was too big a move looking back um no i don't i mean i mean i never really questioned having gone to sky you know i had other offers and i actually did a stagiaire with with argos which is now sunweb um you know maybe my career path would have taken a different a different role um you know maybe i would have entered a team as more of a with more opportunities as a young rider but i learned a lot from that team and you know i made, met some great friends on that team and you know the opportunities that i that i had and just what i learned there you know definitely helped to excel me as an athlete but also you know just having time with with brailsford and fran miller and Carrison and picking those people's brains just on you know organization and you know progress and you know kind of evolution of sport but of life and applying those you know lessons learned to life in general was something that i you know wouldn't have done any differently like it seemed to me as a fan like when you went there you and joe dombrowski were two of the biggest most explosive talents in the world of cycling and it's nearly like i'm not sure if it would have happened anyway elsewhere maybe it's the process of molding someone from a raw passionate energetic u23 rider to a a professional to a seasoned pro but it seems like they nearly they nearly held you back that obviously you didn't get the opportunities to lead the team like you would you know going to a smaller team but yet they really drilled you into that domestic role and I suppose your bills definitely led to that because you could get over the mountains and then still gas it in the valleys. Uh, would you have liked to have more opportunity there? Um, you know, there were definitely my t- like times in my career when I thought that, oh, it would have been better had I gone to another team. But, you know, I definitely, just with my personality as well, I slotted into that role as a domestique and actually really enjoyed that. And, you know, the higher up, you know, kind of the totem pole you get, the more there's a lot of pressure for you know especially a rider at sky and the few times in my career that i did have opportunity to you know ride for myself i really enjoyed um but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of pressure in in a role like that so yeah like i said it's you know there were riders that i raced with as under 23 who i was you know very competitive with who you know went on to win a lot of races you know lutsenko or you know the yates twins you know michael volgren these are riders who are you yeah. know at the top of the sport now who i was you know competing with and beating as under 23 so you know our career definitely took a different trajectory um but it's hard to say was that you know a result of the team or is that a result of just you know kind of development at different stages in our life and kind of physical maturity and again, you never know the real truth, but looking from the outside in, the move to Katusha looked like a great move to you. It looked like even your relationship with the press, you seemed like you had that kind of swagger back in your step again, like you were you were back to nearly where you were before you joined Sky, a little bit of confidence. I don't want to say arrogance, but a little bit of a little bit of a strut going on. Yeah, it was definitely like a boost of confidence to go to a team and, you know, um jose Azevedo was the the general manager there and you know he and i had spoken a little bit when i was an under 23 because he was at trek um or radio shack so he'd known who i was and kind of known the you know my under 23 pedigree so he was definitely brought me onto that team to be you know a rider who had the potential of you know leading the team and then you know in a race like the tour de france you know helping zacharin who you know has been a proven grand tour rider so I definitely took a lot of confidence in that first year. You know, it was a big change going from Team Sky to, to Katusha. Just the, the infrastructure and the support, it was different. But I felt like I had taken kind of all that I needed from Sky and was able to, 
you know, look after myself because I knew kind of the process by which, you know, Sky was approaching it. Kind of um, feels like going from uh, Rocky Balboa's camp over to Ivan Drago's camp, that move you made. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a change for sure. And, you know, the last few years of Katushi, you know, the team was far different than it was when it initially started in 2009 or 11 or whatnot. Um, but, you know, by then I had kind of the resources and the, the knowledge to, to do what I needed to do on, you know, on my own. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, I did have some opportunities there and, you know, I, I wanted to ride the Tour de France and that was a big, a big objective of mine since, since a young age. So the move to Katusha was largely, you know, driven towards the fact that, you know, I wanted to, wanted to ride in the Tour. And circling back and finishing off full circle. Uh, I know the trends with race organizers in the last few years is making these crazy spectacles for the fans for at the roadside and on tv but balancing that the guys racing this you know they're somebody's brother they're somebody's husband they're somebody's son how do we get that balance uh that's hard you know and i think you know as athletes we or i know within the peloton people complain a lot but not much changes you know there's the amount of times we're on a start line and oh, this is a stupid stage or these weather conditions are awful. We shouldn't be racing, but we always seem to go ahead and do it. Um, you know, and I think racing as a whole has also changed, you know, just the dynamics of racing and the team tactics. So I think, you know, race promoters are definitely in a position where they're trying to find a way to kind of bring that, you know, excitement back to racing that is unpredictable. And like I said, you know, the athletes in, in many ways are, you know, a guinea pig for that and their show ponies, but at the same time, you know, is there less collegiality between the guys? Are they looking out for each other less? Uh, I would say yes. Um, you know, and that's just part of the, the risk in the Peloton now and the kind of the stakes at hand for, for racing and the kind of, again, the risk reward, you know, it's one of the things in cycling, you know, I was said over in in February, I was over in Nice and just speaking to staying with Larry Warbass and, you know, the amount of, potential for your life to change in one six-hour race is immense you know you can go into a race like liege best only age and you're a rider on minimum wage on a you know continental team and your team gets a start and you get a top 10 or you get a podium like your whole life changes in the span of you know six hours and there's i mean obviously there's the work that goes into that but you know that's one of the very unique things with cycling still is that you know one good day can can change your whole life and i think that you know keeps a lot of athletes you know going and realizing that you know so much can change in such a short period of time but also we have on the flip side of that coin one bad day changes your life as well well that's true yeah we got this crazy fucking dynamic going on there at the moment yeah yeah like i said you kind of uh you know you really have to ignore the bad and kind of keep dreaming of the good uh, to finish off, looking back on an amazing career, three Grand Tours, ridden with some of the best riders in the world, you lived every kid's dream. What's the one standout memory you have? Um, I would still have to say the probably the 2018 Tour de France. You know, that was I really did just have such a good a good time. And I guess it was one of the few races that I actually realized what I was doing, like in the moment. Um, you know, I'd been obviously done other grand tours and, you know, classics and ridden with, you know, all sorts of big names of the sport. But I think for whatever reason, just realizing where I was 
and the kind of the whole process to get there, you know, throughout that race, having reflections of, you know, watching the tour as a young kid or having people, you know, give me, you know, a little piece of memorabilia if they went to visit the tour when I was young, just that kind of full experience of realizing what I'd accomplished was, was a highlight. And, Goosebumps you know, from, on the Champs-Élysées? Yeah, uh, well, I, no, I didn't have goosebumps because that road is in terrible condition. It was rougher than hell. But, um, yeah, you know, just finishing that. And I think, you know, there was at one point, I think it was on stage eight, 19, um, you know, we were down to four riders and like we attacked up the up the tourmalet and I kind of set up Zacharin for attack, for an attack and just realized that like, wow, like I'm at the Tour de France, like attacking on the front. Like that's, that's a long journey from, you know, being a, a young boy in Oregon watching this race on TV. Dreams do come true. And it was a pleasure. Uh, for listeners, where can they find you? I know you've got your own podcast. You want to give that a plug? Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram at Ian at Ian Boswell. And my podcast can be found at wahoofitness.com forward slash frontiers. It's called Breakfast with Boz. Um, it's on most major platforms, however you listen to your podcast. I'm going to go and binge listen to it now. I'm stuck inside on Zwift. <laughs> well there's yeah a lot of episodes coming out soon so yeah you have plenty sweet and you're a gent i appreciate it what a man ian boswell not many people have walked away from a world tour contract he must have the distinction of being one of possibly only a handful who have ever done that really enjoyed that episode of a pile more top quality guests world tour riders world-class performers lined up over the coming months if you guys jump on over to patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore walsh and please take a look and if you'd be willing to buy me a pint if you'd be willing to buy me a coffee just to say you know what i've enjoyed listening to these yarns i've enjoyed this podcast that's your chance to do it and the show really really appreciates it and it helps the production quality and it helps me fishing for those guests and bringing you top quality content week after week that's it i'm back next week with another amazing guest 